From Pacifica, this is Democracy Now! These laws are only a form of bringing back slavery. We say that slavery is gone, but it's not. When you want to bring people into this country to work and exploit them with no benefits, what is that saying? That's another form of slavery. As the debate over immigration continues on Capitol Hill, tens of thousands of people take to the streets of New York in support of immigrant rights. We'll hear from some of the marchers and host a discussion on immigration reform. Then part two of our interview with world-renowned linguist and political analyst Noam Chomsky on troop withdrawal from Iraq, Haiti, democracy in Latin America, and the Israeli occupation of Palestine. The reporting has been as if, say, you know, I broke into your house, took over the whole house, uh, finally agreed to torture you, you know, stole everything from you and so on, and then agreed to leave you the attic and the cellar but keep the rest of the house. Uh, and it's, I do that with great anguish because I don't want to leave the attic. I kind of liked it. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Protests are continuing throughout the country against proposed legislation that could criminalize the nation's 12 million undocumented workers. In New York, tens of thousands of immigrants and rights activists marched across the Brooklyn Bridge Saturday. Meanwhile, student walkouts are expanding across the U.S. Ever since 40,000 students walked out in the Los Angeles region, last Monday. Since then, walkouts have occurred in San Diego, Houston, Detroit, El Paso, Las Vegas, Denver, Dallas, Tucson, Phoenix, Austin, Washington, D.C., and Washington State. In Ennis, Texas, as many as 130 students were barred from their high school prom Saturday night for taking part in walkouts earlier in the week. Nationwide protests have been called for next Monday, April 10th. We'll have more on the New York March in a few minutes. In Iraq, the U.S. effort to push out Prime Minister Ibrahim al-Jafri has gained momentum. Last week, the U.S. ambassador to Iraq, Zamil Khalilzad, notified Shiite politicians that President Bush no longer supports Jafri and wants a new leader. Over the weekend, one of Iraq's leading Shiite political blocs joined the growing call for Jafri to resign. On Sunday, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice and British Foreign Minister Jack Straw made a surprise visit to Baghdad and urged Iraqi leaders to form a new government. Meanwhile, a group of prominent Shiite clerics are now calling for the expulsion of U.S. Ambassador Khalilzad from Iraq. They accuse him of being anti-Shiite. Here in this country, calls for Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld to resign are increasing. On Sunday, General Anthony Zinni, the former commander of U.S. forces in the Middle East, accused Rumsfeld of committing, quote, a series of disastrous mistakes in Iraq. Meanwhile, Condoleezza Rice admitted the United States has probably made thousands of errors in Iraq. She made the admission on Friday during a meeting in Britain. I know we've made uh, tactical errors, thousands of them, I'm sure. This could have gone that way or that could have gone that way. But when you look back in history, what will be judged is, did you make the right strategic decisions? And if you spend all of your time trying to judge this tactical uh, issue or that tactical issue, I think you miss, miss the, larger, uh, the larger sweep. Now, Protesters greeted Rice throughout her trip to Britain. Shame on you! 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 
they, they chanted, shame on you, in Blackburn, the hometown of Britain's Foreign Secretary Jack Straw. Demonstrators chanted so loud the screams could be heard inside the city's town hall where Rice was meeting. A planned visit to the town's mosque was cancelled because of the protests. At the Liverpool Institute for the Performing Arts, half a dozen students, with the school director's permission, lined up just inside the school's front door and stood with arms crossed over black T-shirts that read, no torture, no compromise. Then when Rice attended a performance by the Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra, one prominent musician refused to perform in protest against the Iraq War. Freed kidnapped journalist Jill Carroll has been reunited with her family. On Sunday, she met with her parents and twin sister in Boston. Carroll said, quote, I finally feel like I'm alive again. I feel so good. She was freed Thursday after being held hostage for 82 days. On Saturday, Jill Carroll announced she was forced to appear in a propaganda video as a price of her freedom. Her editor, Richard Bergenheim of the Christian Science Monitor, read a statement of hers on Saturday. Things that I was forced to say while captive are now being taken by some as an accurate reflection of my personal views. They are not. The people who kidnapped me and murdered Alan Iniwa are criminals at best. They robbed Alan of his life and devastated his family. They put me, my family and friends, all those around the world who have prayed so fervently for my release through a horrific experience. I was and remain deeply angry with the people who did this. That was Richard Bergenheim reading the statement of Joe Carroll. In Washington, President Nixon's former legal counsel, John Dean, testified Friday in favor of censuring President Bush for ordering the National Security Agency to conduct domestic surveillance without legally required court warrants. Dean spoke at a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing to discuss Senator Russell Feingold's calls to censure the president. Also testifying in favor of censure was Bruce Fine, a conservative legal scholar and former Reagan administration official. He said Bush's claim of inherent constitutional authority has no stopping point. So far, Feingold has received little support from his own party for censure. Only two other Democrats attended Friday's hearing, Patrick Leahy of Vermont and Herb Cole of Wisconsin. The London Telegraph is reporting senior military officials from Britain are meeting today to discuss possible military strikes against Iran and the consequences of a U.S. attack. According to the paper, British officials now believe the Bush administration is prepared to attack Iran on its own or with assistance from Israel, even if there's little international support. The paper outlined one possible attack scenario like this. U.S. ships and submarines stationed in the Gulf would begin by firing tactical Tomahawk cruise missiles at Iran's air defense systems. Then B-2 stealth bombers would drop satellite-guided bunker-busting bombs on suspected sites connected to Iran's nuclear program. One senior official in the British Foreign Office told the newspaper, quote, the belief in some areas of Whitehall is that an attack is now all but inevitable. But some British officials are concerned an attack within Iran would unhinge southern Iraq, where British troops are stationed. 
Meanwhile, the Washington Post is reporting U.S. intelligence and terrorism experts now believe Iran would respond to U.S. military strikes by deploying intelligence operatives to carry out attacks against U.S. targets abroad and civilians in the United States, Europe, and elsewhere. The Iranian-backed group Hezbollah has carried out attacks against the U.S. targets before, including the 1983 truck bombing of a Marine barracks in Beirut, killing 241 people, and a 1996 truck bombing in Saudi Arabia that killed 19 U.S. service members. In other news from Britain, Tony Blair's government is now acknowledging for the first time the U.S. and British invasion of Iraq provided motivation for the four British suicide bombers who killed 52 people in London last July. According to the Observer newspaper, the British Home Office is preparing a report that concludes the men were radicalized by Britain's foreign policy, particularly in Iraq. Shortly after the July 7th attacks, British MP George Galloway said Londoners had, quote, paid the price for the British government's decision to attack Iraq and Afghanistan. But until now, the government has tried to claim there were no ties between the bombings and the Iraq war. Meanwhile, the Times of London reports high-ranking British intelligence agents have warned Tony Blair in a top-secret memo that the war in Iraq will make a Britain a target on attacks by al-Qaeda for many years to come. In news from Capitol Hill, a former top aide to Congressmember Tom DeLay has pleaded guilty in connection to a lobbying scandal involving Republican lobbyist Jack Abramoff. The aide, Tony Rudy, is DeLay's former deputy chief of staff. He admitted accepting cash and other gifts and favors while working in the leadership office, as well as after leaving government to become a lobbyist. In November, DeLay's former press secretary, Michael Scanlon, also pled guilty as part of an expanding congressional corruption probe. In New Orleans, over 2,000 demonstrators rallied on Saturday to protest the city's plans for this month's city elections. The Reverends Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton and others called on the city to set up satellite polling places in areas like Houston to allow city residents who evacuated after Hurricane Katrina to vote in the city election. This is Aljandita Scott Davis, the former head of the National Bar Association. The NAACP Legal Defense Fund is currently in the courts right now to attempt to provide satellite voter locations similar to those awarded Iraqi citizens and Bosnian citizens. We want that same right. We want satellite voting for citizens or the election delayed. People don't know where they can vote. They don't know how to vote. They're being charged a poll tax or transportation just to come to vote. That was Algenita Scott Davis, former head of the National Bar Association. In labor news, janitors at Nova Southeast University have voted to join janitors at the University of Miami in a strike against Unico, the company hired by both schools to clean the campus. Janitors at the two schools have accused the company of unfair labor practices. Meanwhile, in Denver, transit workers have gone on strike for the first time in 24 years. And the New York Times is reporting New York City's black population is declining for the first time since the draft riots during the Civil War. According to census data, 30,000 fewer African Americans lived in the city in 2004 than in 2000. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. And welcome to all of our listeners and viewers. 
Protests are continuing across the country against proposed changes to the nation's immigration laws. In New York, tens of thousands of people marched from Brooklyn to Lower Manhattan on Saturday in support of immigrant rights. The rally came a week after upwards of a million people demonstrated in Los Angeles and after weeks of historic protests in cities from Chicago to Denver to Phoenix. We'll have more on the New York demonstration uh, on Capitol Hill. The debate over immigration reform is heating up in Congress. On Sunday, Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist said he wants a full Senate vote on immigration legislation later this week, despite sharp divisions over the issue between Democrats and Republicans, as well as within his own party. The Senate Judiciary Committee last week approved a bill that would allow the 11 million undocumented immigrants living in this country a chance to work here legally and eventually become U.S. citizens. President Bush supports a guest worker plan that would not allow undocumented workers to obtain citizenship, but would let them stay in the country as legal residents. Meanwhile, the House has already approved legislation written by Republican James Sensenbrenner that has been described as the most repressive immigration bill in 70 years. House Bill 4437 would, among other things, make every undocumented immigrant a felon and make it a crime for priests, nuns, healthcare workers, social workers to offer help to undocumented immigrants. The issue of immigration dominated the Sunday talk shows this weekend. Sensenbrenner called the legislation, quote, the toughest thing that I've done in 37 years in public office. Senator George Allen of Virginia broke ranks with President Bush, saying, quote, I don't think we ought to be passing anything that rewards illegal behavior or, or amnesty. And South Carolina Republican Lindsey Graham cast the deba- debate as, quote, a defining moment for the Republican Party. For more on the issue of immigration, we're joined now by Ron Walters, professor of government and politics at the University of Maryland College Park. His most recent book is titled Freedom is Not Enough. He joins us from Washington, D.C. And on the line from California, David Bacon, veteran labor journalist who writes for a number of publications, including The Nation, The Progressive, The Pacific News Service. He's also a programmer on Pacifica Station KPFA in Berkeley. Uh, David Bacon is author of the book The Children of NAFTA and Community. Without Borders, which is being published later this year. Um, David, let's begin with you. How do you frame this discussion and your response to what's happening now on Capitol Hill? Well, first, the the most important thing, I think, is are these outpourings of opposition that are taking place around the country with a million people on the streets in Los Angeles, the demonstration that just happened in New York. Um, They're happening in places where we don't even think of... um, the states that don't have large immigrant communities, Charlotte, North Carolina, for instance, or there was even a demonstration confronting Frist in Tennessee itself. So this has become something that's taking place, you know, nationally around the country. Um, In the Congress, though, I, I don't think that the debate in Congress is really reflecting what's happening out in the streets because it's posing only two alternatives, neither one of which I think offer a reasonable um, improvement in the lives of undocumented people here or any kind of solution to our um, immigration problems. If, in fact, you see immigration as a problem, which I think is the basic issue under, underlying the whole debate. Um, Sensenbrenner, as you um, said, proposes a bill that is probably the most regressive immigration bill in the, in the history of our country, you know, that would turn 12 million people into federal felons. But the Senate bill is really not that much of an improvement either, because what the Senate proposes to do essentially is to establish huge new guest worker programs. Um, We have experience. It's it's ironic that this is is happening around the birthday of Cesar Chavez, because 
Um, Cesar Chavez was a big opponent of one of the first big guest worker programs in the U.S., the Bracero program, and Cesar said that um, organizing the United Farm Workers Union would not have been possible so long as that program continued to exist, one of the main reasons he had for opposing uh, it and, and for ending it. So here's the Senate now proposing to establish a, a program that would be much larger, and not just for agricultural workers, but for workers in many different industries, um, and say, and say, the Senate says that the only way in which somebody who's here without papers um, can get any kind of legal status is to enroll as um, somebody in one of these programs. And at the same time, the Senate bill also um, increases enforcement as well by um, increasing the enforcement of employer sanctions, for instance, which is the, which is the law that says that undocumented people um, are committing a federal crime by working. We've had that on the books since 1986, and instead of eliminating that law, the Senate um, bill proposes to uh, enforce it on steroids, more or less. Uh, Ron Walters, I'd like to ask you, uh, Representative Sheila Jackson Lee has called the immigration issue the civil rights issue of our time, but it's not necessarily a view that is uh, shared uh, by uh, many of our other f uh, fellow members of Congress uh, from the African-American caucus or obviously from a large number of members of Congress. Your perspective on how especially the African-American community is viewing this immigration debate? Well, I'm reminded that tomorrow is the anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King, Jr., and uh, that when he was alive, of course, um, uh, the civil rights movement uh, helped uh, Cesar Chavez to oppose the Bracero program uh, and is always stuck uh, with the community in terms of coalitions. Um, but when I look at um, the tremendous mobilizations that are occurring now, I consider that it is ridiculous for that reason to try to criminalize people coming across the border. It is both ridiculous and inhumane. Uh, and I think that uh, if he were alive, he would stand against that uh, even, even today. Uh, but against the backdrop of this mobilization that's going on, uh, we have not really heard the fact that a 1,000 African Americans met in Gary, Indiana, at the site of the famous uh, conference that took place in 1972, uh, to talk about the economic status of blacks. Uh, we've not heard really that three days ago the Urban League released a state of black America and said that blacks, the economic status is only 56 percent uh, of whites. And then I'm just coming back from this uh, tremendous march that Reverend Jackson led uh, in New Orleans where we talked about poverty and racism. So there are a lot of things happening in the background uh, which talk about the pain that African Americans are suffering at this moment in history. And I think just to be too truthful about it, uh, that what we have now is an immigration approach that is really not comprehensive because it doesn't take that aspect uh, into effect. Uh, and, of course, what I mean by pain, particularly with respect to low-wage jobs, is that there is a very sort of vibrant competition uh, that is unregulated and that it is continuing to push particularly black males uh, out of the labor market. Well, but one of the things that I've noticed in the debates and the discussions in, in, in the corporate media is that the emphasis has been largely on this guest worker program. Uh, and uh, and it seems that there is even larger opposition to the question of legalizing the 10 to 12 million uh, immigrants that are already here in the country uh, that, who are undocumented, when the reality is that it would be the legalization process that would help to drive wages up. Uh, because in reality, right now, you have 
11, uh, 11 to 12 million people living in a situation where they cannot challenge their employers. They have no legal status. They can be completely exploited. Any kind of a process of legalization would allow them to assert labor rights more and, in essence, begin to bring the, the, the sort of bottom of, the, of, the, of labor wages uh, up to some degree. Well, you're right about that, but that can happen even uh, without undocumented workers. Uh, features of the movement that's going on right now uh, could take on uh, what happened uh, in the early 1930s in this country when blacks were coming up uh, into the industrial auto plants uh, in Chicago and Detroit. And the NAACP said that, uh, well, you can't just come up here because you're going to be used as scabs and strike breakers uh, and lower wages uh, for white workers. So what you have to do is to join the labor movement and to kick up uh, those wages, and that historically is what occurred. So what I don't hear enough, I think, is that aspect of it from people who already have, have legal papers, who already sort of know what this movement is about, uh, and I think that is going to help more than anything else. But I think that there's all another thing here that I think has to be monitored, and that is that I think that people who have been here for four generations uh, have to have some consideration uh, for these low-wage jobs. Uh, the process of oppression in this country has created uh, that low-wage labor market uh, for African Americans. And for that uh, privilege, that right uh, for them to have jobs in their own country, not to be protected by any legislation, as far as I'm concerned, uh, does not make this approach comprehensive in the long run. We're talking to Ron Walters, professor of government and politics, University of Maryland, College Park, and labor journalist David Bacon. We'll be back with them in a minute. Yo pregunto a los presentes si no se han puesto a pensar que esta tierra es de nosotros y no del que tenga más. Yo pregunto si en la tierra nunca habrá pensado usted que si las manos son nuestras es nuestro lo que nos dé. Victor Hara, Tear Down the Fences here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Well, tens of thousands of people took to the streets in New York Saturday in support of immigrant rights in what has been described as the largest rally of its kind in the city. The crowd stretched for more than a mile as demonstrators marched across the Brooklyn Bridge to rally at a a federal office building in lower Manhattan. With the Statue of Liberty in the background, marchers waved flags from more than a dozen countries, including the U.S. Stars and Stripes, and chanted slogans, including El Pueblo Unido, Jamás Será Vencido, The People United Will Never Be Defeated, and El Pueblo Callado, Jamás Será Escuchado, A Silent People Will Never Be Heard. A large number of those who marched were undocumented immigrants. Democracy Now! covered the march on Saturday and spoke with some of the demonstrators about why they were taking to the streets. My name is 
Rocio Marquez, and I'm here because uh, to give a little support for for these people. We are here because we want to send a message to the people, to everybody, that um, they're not people are not uh, criminals. All what they want is a better life. All what they want is to work and have a decent place to live. That's all. And I think that everybody, every human being deserves that. Doesn't matter where they're from or what the situation, economical situation it is, everybody wants something better. Uh, I served in the United States Army for 10 years. I'm first generation Hispanic, but I feel like an immigrant. I served this country honorably for 10 years, and still this country was based on the fact that everyone came from somewhere else. So we shouldn't get try to get these people out, we should welcome them. Because, besides, it would be hypocritical to shove democracy on uh, the Arabs, and we're going to close the borders of this country. You know, it's one of those things. The only people that really belong here are the Native Americans. That, those are the only ones. Anything other than that should be allowed to stay, as long as they abide, abide by the laws. Myra Hernandez, and we're here representing for um, this immigrant rights. Uh, we're from Columbia University School of Social Work, um, and basically why I'm here is because well, my father was um, in the 70s came as an under, undocumented worker. He is not. I mean, even though those, these issues don't affect me directly right now, it's my people and it's my background, and this is all where these laws are only a form of bringing back slavery. We say that slavery is gone, but it's not. When you want to bring people into this country to work and exploit them with no benefits, what is that saying? That's another form of slavery. I'm Eddie. I came for my mom because she wants papers. She wants to see um, her family in Mexico. That's why we came together. Can you tell me what your sign says? What? Can you tell me what your sign says? Um, I'm, um, I am American and I love my family. Please know this, this crime. Discrimination. Discrimination. Sounds of the streets of New York this weekend. Our guests are David Bacon, veteran labor journalist, and Professor Ron Walters. Juan, you were also there covering this protest. Uh, yes, and the amazing thing is that there haven't been very many estimates of the crowd. I, I would say, having been in many demonstrations over decades, that this it was easily fifty to 100,000 people. And the amazing thing is it wasn't really organized by many of the so, sort of uh, normal uh, Washington-based or New York-based immigrant groups. This was actually a grassroots effort by the Pentecostal churches and by a few, uh, a few more locally-based immigrant groups in the city. And because the the organized labor movement and the big immigrant groups were all planning their big march for April 10th, uh, and this one really surged up uh, unexpectedly uh, it, because people were watching Spanish-language uh, television and radio. And I, I would have to say it was probably the largest march of Latinos in the history of New York. City, even though it was not all Latinos, there were there were Chinese and and, and Koreans and uh, and Irish and and uh, and Guyanese as well, but it was largely uh, Latino. And but I'd like to get back to David Bacon and this whole issue of of uh, the labor market in the in the U.S. One of the things I haven't seen in this debate is a connection to the reality of why there are so many immigrants here in the United States uh, uh, at this stage, so many undocumented, and also 
that the reality is that 60 percent of all of the undocumented immigrants in the country are Mexican, and that a large, uh, to a large degree, uh, th- this immigration situation has to do with the failure of NAFTA, uh, 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 the common market that the United States created vis-a-vis, and the differences between that and, for instance, the European common market. Like your thoughts on that? Well, actually, I think it's the success of NAFTA one. It, it was a very successful agreement for people who made a lot of money out of it, but. Uh, it had a terrible impact on working people in Mexico. Just dumping, you know, cheap U.S. corn on the Mexican market deprived thousands of Mexican farmers of a livelihood. And, of course, people, when they have no way of making a living, do what's necessary to support their families. In a lot of cases, people came to the United States. So, so NAFTA provoked immigration to the U.S. rather than um, lifting living standards in Mexico, which might have given people, you know, more of a future um, in their own communities. Um, but in terms of what what we could do here about that, about the labor market, I think one of the most interesting things about Sheila Jackson's Lee's bill in Congress um, is that it is really the only bill that tries to um, deal with this question of job competition that you mentioned yourself earlier, because she tries to find common ground between immigrants and people who are long-term residents or citizens in the U.S., whether African-American or white or or Chicano or Latino themselves, um, by, on the one hand, um, offering, I think, a real legalization program to people. In other words, saying that people who have been in the country for five years would get green cards and protecting the rights of immigrants, but then going on to say that in order to deal with high unemployment and communities with high unemployment, that some of the fees that would be paid by people um, gaining legal status would be used to set up job training and job creation programs in communities with high unemployment. And while you can say that, you know, certainly to deal with unemployment in the U.S., especially unemployment in the poorest communities of color, requires more money than just that, I think what's significant about that is that she is trying to find common ground. And it's, I think, a, a, a testament to Jackson Lee and to the Congressional Black Caucus that the most progressive immigration bill in Congress comes from African-Americans. And um, I think it's a kind of a scandal that there is no media coverage of this bill and that we're sort of reduced to debating between these, what essentially are two very negative alternatives, either criminalizing everybody who's here without papers or um, turning everybody into an exploited guest worker labor force. That's not much of a freedom alternative, and it's certainly not one that would guarantee any kind of equality for um, immigrants in the U.S., and Ron Walters, your sense of how this debate will play out over the next week? I think uh, Majority Leader Bill Frist is insisting he wants a vote this week uh, on the competing bills in the Senate. Well, first, I would agree uh, with what David said. Uh, I think that you also have to understand that that bill that Sheila Jackson Lee put in, uh, 43 uh, members of the Congressional Black Caucus only attracted the support of nine uh, members. And so I that gives you some sense of the underlying angst uh, in the black community about uh, this whole this whole matter. Uh, I think that when you look at the Republicans, uh, you've got to say that they're split because, on the one hand, uh, there is a group that takes sort of a law and order approach to everything, and they want to criminalize the problem. And then the others, of course, are in bed with uh, big business, uh, the people who really benefit uh, from immigration, uh, particularly the kind of immigration we're talking about. And so that split, as far as I'm concerned, means that you're probably not going to have a bill this time because I think the fissures are too deep in the leading party, 
uh, that really has to form the legislation. I would think, though, that uh, the progressive community really ought to look uh, at the interest of this administration and the interest of big business. Because we are down here talking about uh, the interest of uh, one organization or another uh, in the black and in the Hispanic community and so forth, and looking at the mobilization of grassroots people. Uh, well, the people really who are moving all of this around, they're at the top. Uh, when you ask the question, you know, whose interests are being benefited by this, uh, you've got to say that it is the people who form the system uh, that allows uh, this immigration to go unchecked, uh, who wink and nod the other way, and who now are trying to put together a piece of legislation who will simply uh, make it possible for big business to continue uh, to exploit these workers. David Bacon, as you covered this issue as a veteran labor journalist, do you see an increasing divide between Latinos uh, and African Americans, or do you see people coming together on this issue? I see people coming together, Amy, um, for two reasons. One is I think that there is common ground here, um, which is basically um, a recognition that all people need equal rights here. I think there's a lot of respect out there for the people who are turning out into the streets who are not activists. They're just ordinary working people who are looking for some measure of freedom and equality. And I think that people in general in our society, especially African-American people, can recognize that. Plus, I think that there is also a more immediate common ground, which is to say that um, on the one hand, we need equal rights for everybody who's here and to protect those rights, especially for immigrants, because they are under attack right now. But we also need economic development. We need jobs, basically. Everybody in this country needs to work. Immigrants need jobs. African-American people need jobs. We all need jobs. So if we could fight for a jobs program and full employment, as the Humphrey Hawkins Act would have um, done back in the 1980s and the early 1990s, and we fight for the rights of immigrants, that's a real solution, not these, as, as Ron's talking about, these pro-corporate um, guest worker programs. You know, the, the guest worker proposals are being made by the Essential Worker Immigration Coalition, which is a group of 40 of the largest industrial associations in the United States, headed by the Chamber of Commerce, including people like Walmart and Tyson Foods. That's who's behind it. This isn't, you know, uh, you don't see people out on the Brooklyn Bridge holding up signs saying, I want to be a guest worker. David Bacon and Ron Walters, we're going to have to leave it there. David Bacon, a veteran labor journalist, Ron Walters, professor of government and politics, University of Maryland, College Park. On Monday, we'll be broadcasting from New Orleans. When we come back, Noam Chomsky.
public government. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. Sweet Honey in the Rock is singing Will You Harbor Me? I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez as we turn to part two of our interview with Noam Chomsky, the world-renowned linguist and political analyst who's just come out with a new book. It's called Failed States, the Abuse of Power and the Assault on Democracy. In his first broadcast interview upon the book's publication, Chomsky spoke to us from our Boston studio on Friday. With public opposition to the Bush administration's policies at record highs, I asked Professor Chomsky to talk about how it is that so much discontent with the government has not translated into larger political mobilization. First of all, on on the fact that advertising is designed to undermine free markets, uh, that everybody knows, anyone who's ever looked at a television ad. According to what you're taught in economics courses, uh, our system is based on free markets uh, uh, with entrepreneurial initiative uh, and uh, uh, rational choices by informed consumers. Well, the reality is radically different. A tremendous amount of the entrepreneurial initiative, if you want to call it that, uh, comes from the dynamic state sector on which most of the economy relies to socialize costs and risks and uh, privatize eventual profit. And that's achieved by, if you like, advertising. So it's presented under the rubric of uh, defense or some other pretext. But it's essentially a way for the public to pay the costs of uh, research and development, take the risks, and eventually hand over the profits. There's some entrepreneurial initiative, but not all that much, mostly at the marketing end. Uh, As far as uh, consumers are concerned, I mean, when you look at a television ad, it is not trying to... uh, Uh, create an informed consumer who's going to make a rational choice. We all know that. If they were going to do that, uh, General Motors would just list the characteristics of its uh, models and, you know, you're over, you're done. The purpose is to delude and deceive by imagery. It's transparent, meaning to ensure that uninformed consumers will make irrational choices. And that goes straight to the democratic deficit. Uh, The U.S. does not have elections in a serious sense. It has uh, advertising campaigns run by the same industries that sell toothpaste, public relations industry. When they're selling candidates, uh, they don't tell you, get, provide you with information about them any more than they do about lifestyle drugs or cars. Uh, what they do is create the imagery to delude and deceive. Uh, that's what's called an electoral campaign. The result is that people are just unaware of the stands of the candidates on issues. Uh, So to take one critical example, uh, take, say, the Kyoto Protocols. I mean, they're not the be-all and end-all, but environmental catastrophe is a serious matter. Uh, The public is strongly in favor of the Kyoto Protocols, so strongly in favor that a majority of Bush voters, Bush voters, thought that he was in favor of it. They're simply unaware. And it's not because of uh, mental incapacity or... uh, a lack of interest, it's because that's the way campaigns are presented. They're presented to keep issues off the agenda. Uh, it's striking cases. Mentioned, take, say, health care, one of the worst domestic problems, most serious domestic problems for most people, the major problem. I mean, it's the most inefficient health care system in the world, uh, double the co- per capita costs of other comparable countries, some of the worst health outcomes, uh, mainly because it's privatized. Uh, the public is strongly against it. For a long period, the public's been in favor of some kind of national health care system. 
uh, well, you know, Kerry is supposed to be the candidate of, uh, you know, speaking for whose constituency calls for social spending and so on and so forth. Now, the last presidential debate, a couple of days before the election, was on domestic issues. And the New York Times had an accurate account of it. It described it as, uh, it pointed out that uh, Kerry made no mention of any government involvement in uh, uh, any health care system. And the reason, according to the Times reporter, uh, is that the idea lacks political support, meaning it only has the support of the overwhelming majority of the population, but it's opposed by the pharmaceutical corporations, the insurance industry, and so on. That's what counts as political support. So Kerry didn't mention and the public doesn't know a stand on these issues. Uh, and so it goes issue after issue. So these are not real elections. We laugh at them, and they were in some third world country. Uh, now, take the war in Iraq. Uh, the, w when you talk about the government propaganda system, we have to recognize that that includes the media. It includes the media, the journals, and so on. That's all part of the propaganda system, They're very closely linked. There is virtually no criticism of the war in Iraq. Now, that will surprise journalists, I suppose. They think they're being very critical, but they're not. Um, the kinds of criticism of the war of Iraq, in Iraq that are allowed in the doctrinal system, the media, and so on, are the kind of criticisms that you heard about, uh, say, in the German general staff uh, after Stalingrad. And it's not working. Uh, it's costing too much. We made a mistake. We should get a different general, something like that. In fact, it's about at the level of a a high school uh, newspaper uh, uh, cheering the local football team. You don't ask, should they win? You ask, how are we doing? You know, did the coach make a mistake? Uh, should we try something else? Uh, that's called criticism. But there's a critical question. What right does the U.S. have to invade another country? Uh, in gross violation of international law, uh, 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 understanding that it's probably going to increase the threat of terror and uh, nuclear proliferation, but just uh, you know, supreme international crime, in the words of the Nuremberg Tribunal, for which uh, German leaders were hanged. Uh, you know, the issue isn't how they're going to win; it's uh, uh, what are they doing there in the first place. Do you and believe? Do you believe Noam Chomsky in immediate withdrawal? That the troops should withdraw immediately? I think we should. There's a certain principle that we should adhere to. The principle is that invading armies have no rights whatsoever. They have responsibilities. The prime responsibility is to heed the will of the victims and to pay massive reparations to the victims for the crimes they've committed. In this case, the crimes go back through the sanctions, which were a monstrous crime, uh, through the support for Saddam Hussein, right through his worst atrocities, but particularly those of the invasion. Those are the two responsibilities of a occupying army. Well, you know, the population has made it pretty clear. Uh, even U.S. and British polls make that clear. Overwhelming majorities want the U.S. to set a timetable withdrawal, withdrawal and adhere to it. Uh, the Britain and the United States refuse. Uh, reparations we can't even talk about. Uh, that's so far from consciousness in the doctrinal system. Well, I think that answers the question. It doesn't really matter what I think. What matters is what Iraqis think, and I think we know that pretty well. Uh, the, uh, uh, the reason the U.S. and Britain aren't withdrawing are those I mentioned, you know, the consequences of a 
uh, independence for Iraq would be uh, an ultimate nightmare for them, and they're going to try to do anything they can to prevent Iraqi democracy as they've been trying in the past. And the argument uh, and that, that they will just descend into civil war and that the sectarian violence uh, will increase and the U.S. went in and now has a responsibility not to leave a mess? Yeah, I mean, the Germans could have given the same argument in uh, occupied Europe, the Russians in uh, the satellites, uh, the Japanese in Asia, and so on. Yeah, they could have all given the same argument. Well, we went in, now we have a responsibility to ensure that terrible things don't happen, and so on. And the argument had some validity. So and when the Germans were driven out of France, let's say, yeah, there were thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people killed by as collaborators, uh, and in Asia even more so. But is that an argument for them? No. It's none of their business. Uh, it's, uh, we don't know what will happen, we, uh, and it's not our decision to make. It's the decision of the victims to make, not our decision. Occupying armies have no right to make the decision. We could have an academic seminar about it in which we could discuss the likely consequences. But the point is, it's not for us to say. Well, until that enters into discussion, and the critical issues of the war, like what right do we have to invade in the first place, enter into discussion, uh, the media and the journals and so on are simply part of the government propaganda system. Uh, as I say, like a high school newspaper, or like uh, Pravda during the Afghanistan war. And what uh, of the role of the American people uh, uh, in this process? Uh, clearly, the uh, it seems to me that so much of the uh, anti-war sentiments so quickly gets channeled into uh, one or another political candidates uh, rather than into continuing to build a, a mass movement that regardless of the, pol of the political uh, uh, folks in office uh, will uh, move to extricate the United States from, uh, from this invasion. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, the, uh, uh, but that's our problem. I mean, you cannot expect power centers whether in the government or in the economic system or in the media, which are all closely linked. I mean, they're not going to try to stimulate uh, uh, popular movements that uh, will be critical of uh, power and try to erode power. In fact, their task is the opposite. So, yes, this has to be done by popular movements. I mean, that's the way every uh, constructive uh, change has taken place in the past. I mean, you know, how, how, how did we get... Uh, civil rights to the extent that they exist, minority rights, uh, uh, women's rights, uh, uh, the benefit system that does exist, and so on. I mean, these things aren't gifts from above. They're one from below. And it's going to be the same on this. No, I'm uh, it, yeah. I was going to say, as you talk about popular movements, um, right now we're in the midst of a kind of groundswell that uh, the certainly the U.S. English-speaking media has not dealt with before, and that is this massive level of grassroots protests against immigration policy in this country. Some of not just the largest protests on immigration, but some of the largest protests in the history of this country are taking place, with upwards of a million people protesting in the streets of Los Angeles, tens of thousands in Atlanta, in Arizona, uh, the biggest protest perhaps in the history of Chicago. What about this? The walkout of 40,000 high school students? Well, uh, these... Uh protests did have an effect. The uh, bill that went through the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, to some extent, reflected them. 
power centers cannot ignore uh, public uh, protests and uh, even worse from their point of view, continuing organization. You know, a demonstration now and then, okay, you can live with it. Uh, if it continues and becomes real grassroots organization, developing uh, a, a functioning political system in which people actually participate in forming and shaping policy and electing their own candidates, if it gets to that stage, they're in trouble. Uh, and we're far from that. In fact, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's terrible irony. We ought to be ashamed of it. But if you want to look for democratic elections in the Western Hemisphere these days, you have to look at countries like Bolivia, not the United States. I mean, in Bolivia, they had a real election. It's the poorest country in South America. Last December, they had an election in which uh, organized, well-organized masses of the population poor people, indigenous people, and others, managed to elect a candidate from their own ranks. Uh, there were real serious issues, and people knew the issues, and they voted on the issues. That's dramatically different from here. That's real democracy. You want to talk about democracy promotion, we need it here, and we can learn lessons from them. Actually, the same is true in Venezuela. Venezuela is bitterly denounced here by the government media propaganda system as totalitarian dictatorship and so on and so forth. Well, you know, you can think what you like about Chavez, not our business. Uh, but the question is what Venezuelans think about him. That's the question if you believe in democracy. Well, we know the answer. Uh, during the Chavez years, support for the elected government has risen very sharply. It is now the highest in Latin America by a considerable margin. Uh, the, uh, he's managed to win poll election and referendum after election, uh, one after another, about half a dozen, despite intense media opposition of a kind that you can't imagine here, uh, and a, a, a subversion by the U.S., by the superpower. And after all, the U.S. supported a military coup to try to overthrow him, had to back down, be, partly because it was quickly reversed by popular action, but partly because of an, a, a swell of protest throughout Latin America where, the, where they just don't have the same contempt for democracy as the leadership and the media do here and don't like the idea of democratically elected governments being overthrown by the military. Since then, the U.S. has been dedicated subversion. I mean, it's very probable that the the last poll that I saw, a North American poll a couple of weeks ago, uh, asked people who they're going to vote for in the next election, and I think it was about two-thirds said they'd vote for Chavez, and I think 4% for the next highest candidate. Well, in those circumstances, the U.S. is almost certain to turn to the standard operating procedure when you know you're going to lose an election. Try to discredit it by getting the opposition to boycott it. Well, no you'll, be, you'll be glad to know that when uh, you mentioned uh, Hugo Chavez, uh, when Amy and I interviewed him several months ago, uh, he mentioned that uh, his favorite American writer was Noam Chomsky, and uh, he, he cited, actually, uh, some of your books. And so I guess that we, we, there ought to be a poll taken of how many leaders in the third world are reading Noam Chomsky, <laughs> uh, because yeah. it, you're obviously having a, an effect on, uh, on many of these leaders. Well, I don't want to be self-serving, but actually know quite a few examples. What are the other ones, no? Well, it's unfair to mention them. <laughs> well, let me they've ask got you. Their own, they've got their own problems with the U.S. government. Let me ask you about Haiti. How does yeah. this fit into the picture that you're talking about? 
Well, won't run through the whole story, but Haiti actually also had a democratic election of a kind that should put us to shame. They had a real democratic election in 1990, uh, again, like Bolivia, you know, massive organ of grassroots organizations, poor people that nobody was paying any attention to, succeeded in electing their own candidate. Uh, to everyone's astonishment, everyone assumed the U.S.-backed candidate uh, uh, representing the elites and the power centers would easily win. Well, he didn't. He got 14% of the vote. Very quickly, the, uh, instantly, the U.S. moved to subvert the election, instantly, uh, by what are called democracy promotion measures, uh, meaning supporting the opposition. Uh, that's what USAID did and so on. Try to support anyone opposed to the government. Uh, other measures were taken. Uh, pretty soon there was a military coup, uh, led to years of vicious terror, Contrary to what people believe, the U.S. supported the coup. Uh, it uh, continued to trade with the junta and the rich elite, increasingly under Clinton. Uh, Clinton actually authorized the Texco oil company to provide oil to the junta and the elite, uh, overriding prof uh, formal professional, uh, presidential uh, uh, directives blocking it. Finally, uh, the Clinton administration decided that the public had been tortured enough sent in the Marines. Uh, that was called democracy promotion. Uh, however, uh, as Alan Nairn right away pointed out and others, uh, Aristide was restored on the condition that he accept the policies of the defeated U.S. candidate in the 1990 election, harsh neoliberal policies which were bound to destroy the economy as they did led to turmoil, disaster, continuing U.S. subversion. Uh, finally, just Finally, the Bush administration blocked aid, uh, more turmoil and fusion. Then came the, uh, by now the country was kind of falling apart. You can go into the details. But finally, the U.S. and France uh, simply intervened and uh, removed the president. Uh, France was particularly infuriated uh, because Aristide had uh, politely called upon France uh, to uh, uh, do something about the crushing debt that had been imposed on Haiti back in 1825 as punishment for their having them, for liberating themselves from France. They've been bearing this ever since. And naturally that infuriated uh, France. How can the Haitians dare to say this? So the U.S. and France basically kicked them out. Uh, horrible atrocity since. Now they're trying to reconstruct somehow. Uh, you know, again, we, ought, we owe them enormous reparations, as does France. Uh, for the atrocities we've been carrying out there actually for over a century uh, after we took over the project of torturing Haitians from France. Uh, is there any, it's hard to know what the possibilities are. I mean, it's just, I mean, the society's been really devastated. It's one of the poorest in the world. Uh, and the but, latest of uh, Aristide being taken out of Haiti in when he after he was reelected, uh, this of course February 29, two thousand four, on a, a U.S. plane with U.S. military and security, yeah. and uh, sent to the Central African Republic. Yeah, not only that, but the U.S. won't even allow him back into the region. Uh, I mean, it's 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 essentially insisted that he be imprisoned in South Africa. He's, uh, this is, there was tremendous protest by the Caribbean countries uh, over this. Uh, his, the candidate who won the election is the one who was closest to him. Probably if he'd been running, he would have won, but the U.S. would never allow that. Uh, and as I say, won't even allow him into the region. 
Well, that's just another illustration of the near passionate hatred of democracy, which is consistent and is indeed recognized. It's even recognized by the scholarship of the, the most uh, prestigious scholarship by advocates of democracy promotion. They advocated, like Thomas Carruthers, head of the Carnegie Endowment Project, was the most respected. Now, he advocates it and says it's wonderful, but he also points out that the U.S. has consistently been opposed to it. Uh, he, there is what he calls a strong line of continuity in all administrations, namely democracy is promoted if and only if it supports U.S. strategic and economic objectives. Uh, in Central America, for example, where he was particularly involved, he was involved in the Reagan State Department, he says, yeah, the U.S. opposed democracy, and the reason, he says, is the U.S. would tolerate only top-down forms of uh, democratic uh, structures in which traditional elites allied to the United States would remain in power in highly undemocratic societies. Yeah, that's kind of democracy promotion that, uh, that we promote, that the administration preaches and that the uh, press and journals hail as magnificent. And, uh, again, this is kind of North Korea. And another region, of course, back to Israel, the election of Kadima, the media characterizing Kadima as the centrist party um, yeah. that was is going to do away with many of the settlements in the West Bank and then the election of Hamas uh, in the yeah. occupied territories, your response? Well, the I would just urge anyone who wants to look into this to compare the edit, lead editorial in the New York Times yesterday with the lead editorial yesterday in the world's leading business journal, the London Financial Times, They're diametrically opposed. The New York Times says, it's wonderful, uh, Israel, Israelis agreed to withdraw from the West Bank. Of course, there is the little matter of borders, but they say that's of no importance, you know, a minor issue where the borders are, yeah, no, no issue except for the people who live there. That's the New York Times. Uh, uh, they do, the Times reported, uh, the anguish of the settlers that'll have to leave. Uh, I mean, it's kind of as if, uh, the reporting has been as if, say, you know, I broke into your house, took over the whole house, uh, finally agreed to tortured you, you know, stole everything from you and so on, and then agreed to leave you the attic and the cellar but keep the rest of the house. Uh, and it's, I do that with great anguish because I don't want to leave the attic. I kind of liked it. Uh, I mean, that's the way it's being reported. I mean, it's scandalous. Noam Chomsky, world-renowned linguist, political analyst, on the publication of his new book, Failed States. That does it for today's show. If you'd like a copy of today's broadcast, you can go to website at democracynow.org. Democracy Now! is produced by Mike Berkshire, Fodo Caduce, John Hamilton, Anna Nagara, Elizabeth Press, Maddie Harper. We welcome Jen Utes, Franklin Lopez. Also special thanks to Aaron Mate, Mike DeFilippo, Nick Massilio, Megan Whitney, and Danielle Stramberg-Peshkin. Our website, again, is democracynow.org. Tuesday, I'll be at Brooklyn College on Thursday at the Central School in New York City. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.